when you come back up, it's there just in case. <laughs> no, no problem. I have this deep fear that the end of the service will be... Well, I'm sorry this morning won't be as fun as last week. I've run out of jokes about $10 bills. But that doesn't mean the Word of God is not relevant and not exciting. It doesn't mean we can't have fun this morning. I want you to remember at 10 o'clock this morning or quarter 10 when people walk in there early for the second church service, they have not forgotten to change their clocks, okay? Don't, don't stare at them. Don't turn around. It's embarrassing enough. One year we were uh, working at a church and I was sitting in my office and there was my wife, my kids, and another guy. And we're sitting there wondering, where's the worship team? So we got up, and I got music out, got ready for the emergency fill-in for this. This is before COVID, so whatever sickness must have been horrible, only to realize it was fall-back week. And we were an hour early sitting in the office. At least I was on time that time. These time changes are crazy. I'm ready to go to sleep still, but we're here. And we're here because God's more important than any time zone. God's more important that we get refreshed because we're going to face people in our lives that don't believe what we believe. And it's good to be together. I've heard it called, it's like a home game, where we're in the, in the home team end, and we're all together. And I love that analogy. Everybody's cheering for the same God. Everyone's on the same side. But out there, there are a lot of people with a lot of opinions. There's a lot of people taking stands. I think even more so now than when I was growing up, do people have opinions they're willing to share? People are taking stands against things and strongly against things. They have slogans. They have vision statements. Some of them are great ideas. We stand against illnesses and diseases, against racism and against poverty. And these are great things to stand against. Most of them, you'll notice, develop the same prefix. They use it in front of the word they want to fight, and the word is anti. Anti, in this case, not refer to your father or mother's sister, and it's not a term of endearment for someone who's older than you that you call anti or uncle to be appropriate, like in some cultures. Anti means to be against. In the 60s, I guess it was, or maybe it was the early 70s, we had the anti-war movement for Vietnam, or at least we had that more so in the States. We've had always anti-taxation. I'm against tax. I'm personally against tax. That's not a political statement. I just don't want to give anybody else my money. I think most people would march if they could find a way to do that. We have the anti-abortion group that was very popular at one point to march. Now that's not done. But we definitely, as Christians, would find ourselves in a, in a pro-life situation. So we'd call ourselves anti-abortion or against. Anti-violence. I'm hoping we're against violence. I don't think violence is an appropriate thing. However, we do know that we had a murder only a little while after we took the bite of the fruit there in the garden. Anti-terrorism. We all remember the, the Twin Towers and those who don't have heard of them. Anti-terrorist actions and organizations exist. Anti-racism, anti-pollution. We even have the anti-drug task force in the police department. We have a lot of people working to be against something. But there is a danger in being against something, and that is we don't remember what we are for. Now I'm going to talk a little politics here. I'm not taking a side, but some of you were alive in 1990, and something happened in Ontario that never has happened before and so far hasn't happened again. 
a man named Bob Ray came to power as the leader of the NDP party. Now here's the problem. When you've been in opposition for so long, listen to the word opposition, your job is to be against everything the government does. What the NDP didn't realize is those they had courted to help them win were against so much that they didn't know what they stood for. This is what their platform ended up that they won. They were against coal, water, nuclear, gas, and oil generation of electricity. What is the default of that? You are now anti-producing electricity. But you didn't expect to win, did you? You see, when we become against something and don't know what we stand for, it becomes dangerous because we're unable to create a situation in which we know what to do next. We just know what not to do. By the way, in the 90s, solar was not really an option. And wind power, all we had were those things the kids play with, the pinwheel things. We didn't have that ability. So there's a great example from our recent history of how being against something but not for something can leave you lost. And it was actually a very difficult time for that party as they governed for one term. We need to remember as Christians, we need to be careful we don't become so against so much that we don't know what we stand for. As a Christian, I cannot live a good Christ-following life when I know what I'm against but don't know how I'm supposed to live. I need to know what I am for, what God has designed me to be. It's easy to say I am against something, but if I don't know what I'm for, I end up down the middle. And in studying 1 John, John doesn't write about any place in the middle. I can be against sin, but what am I for? If I do nothing, technically I'm not committing sin, but actually I am because God calls us to be fruitful. To go, to go forward in our walk with Christ and do things that accomplish the glory of God and move the kingdom forward. Being against something is not enough. We need to be for something. I think John does a good job of this. We've been reading through. He tells us we are for loving one another. And we'll get even more into that. Loving our brother. He says it is wrong to hate but he doesn't leave it on the negative. He says, it is right to love your brother and sister in Christ. He tells us what it is to not be a Christian, but he also tells us what it is to be a Christian. We are told to be obedient to God. He doesn't just say, don't mess up so God's mad at you. No, he says, be obedient to God. And there's a joy and excitement in loving and obedience to God. He tells us to do the will of God. It's not just about being in his plan. It's about being part of his plan. I think often we become Christians and it becomes that marker day. I'm a Christian, now I'm just waiting to go to heaven. I've talked about this before. And I think John makes it very clear. There's something that goes on in between. We are for promoting the gospel, promoting Christ as Savior, reconciliation, and grace. Now we're going to do a part of 1 John where John actually talks about People who walked out of the light. As a matter of fact, became against something. Something that you and I, I believe, hold dear. And that is they became against Christ as Messiah. Christ is the one who died. Christ who came in the flesh. And that's an issue. You see, if you're going to read 1 John, you've got to recognize that John has already made a statement. In his gospel, where he actually lays out Jesus' life, record much of what Jesus said, and the commands that Jesus made, and how he taught, he makes a statement that if you don't believe it, there's no point in reading 1 John, the letter. In the gospel of John, 
Chapter 1, verse 14, he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you don't believe that Jesus was God, he starts out, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then it tells us the Word became flesh. So Jesus became flesh. If you don't believe that Jesus was God at the beginning, is God when he was on this earth, and again is still God when he's in heaven, then reading John's letter really isn't worth much to you. Because his whole premise is Jesus came, he died, he rose, and that was all for us. So when John wrote this letter, he was of that belief. We talked before about the Gnostics who believed that Jesus showed up kind of in spirit and faked the body thing, which means Jesus didn't really die. Well, that's a problem because the Bible tells us that without sacrifice, that the penalty for sin is death, and we need the sacrifice. Death is what cures sin, and that's what Jesus did for us, the only one who could do that. So now we're going to get into a little bit of 1 John. In this part, I'm going to start talking about what scholars say about it. Why? Because I'm not one of them, so I have to quote other people. I'm not smart enough to do this on my own, but I can actually look it up and gather the information. But I want you to enjoy the fact that we know what we're for. The majority of what you're going to hear in this section of Scripture actually tells us who we are as Christians, that step beyond just becoming a Christian but the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God within us. Yes, there are things we are to be against, but I think John is outright saying there are things we are for, and one of them is listening to the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God is in us and speaks to us and directs us. But it's going to be fun because as we go through this, as we read through this section, I'm going to be able to give you two or three ideas of what each thing could mean. The thing that strikes me is that when we deal with different things in the Bible, if they can have possible different meanings, if the translation maybe is slightly different, you can go with two ideas. None of them that I've come across actually contradict Scripture unless you really twist it around. When you hear the two or three meanings I'm going to give you for each word in here, you're going to say, you know what? Any of them could be true, and they're still true to the Bible. The Bible deciphers the Bible. So there's nothing here you're going to go, oh my goodness, I've believed wrong all my life. But there's some neat ideas to hear what John could have meant and to understand what it means to us. So I'm going to read a huge chunk of scripture, long for me, where we're doing verse 18 to verse 27. I had a pastor friend who, he came up with the most brilliant idea. He had to read through what I call the begatitudes. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Those names get hard, so he, he took his his phone and turned on the Bible app and had the wonderful British voice read through them all so he didn't get them wrong. I'll read for you today. I won't sound as good as a British actor, but I'll do my best to keep your attention as we go through a large portion of Scripture. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? The man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he has taught you, remain in him. I don't know if you noticed, there's a couple of difficult words in there, especially at our time in history. Remembering again that when we translate things, first of all, we need to understand context or culture. Often there are statements, I don't know if you noticed it, I, I mean, I'm fine, but there's comments about men with long hair in the Bible. If we don't understand the culture, we would write off any man with long hair as being not appropriate, not Christ-like. Well, they didn't have barbers back then that cut your hair every couple of weeks. Most men had long hair. What was long hair? I don't know what they meant, but culturally there was a length of hair in the area that Paul was writing to that was okay. Braided hair in one section talks about as being inappropriate. My wife braids her hair. I don't know if she can go to heaven. I read that somewhere. But context tells us there are certain things that in a certain culture that need to be changed. So if we understand the context of this, we understand better what's being said. Not everything in the Bible applies to every single situation, but often the general idea does. The specifics are cultural. The audience you're writing to, if you look at the Gospels, they're written differently. You've got Luke writing a gospel. His would be a much more educated style of writing. You've got John here who's writing in a totally different way. As a matter of fact, trying to put off the idea, trying to say to people, no, Jesus was here. And we hear that in his letters, and we hear that in the way he writes his gospel. Again, context. It's not that they're different information. It's different ways of sending it to us so we can understand it. But the big one is Greek to English. There's just words that don't work. Sometimes we have to use two or three words and still don't get it. Sometimes we don't have a word that matches. So sometimes we don't fully understand. Most of us know that the word love is kind of a lame word because I can love my pet and my wife. It's the same word. I don't love my pet. Well, it's a fish. I don't even love the fish. But I didn't love my cats when we had them the same way I love my wife. We have one word for that. A great example. So as we work through this, we need to understand what John is trying to say. It's context and the fact that the words may have slightly different meanings to different people. The first difficult thing here, this is the last hour. There's a couple of places in the Bible where writers have written letters that would suggest that they thought it was all about to end. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus walked this earth, was born approximately. The letter we're reading from John, maybe somewhere around 80 years after we would have changed over to the, the A.D. time period. Was John wrong? Should we take out this section? Did John say, here we are in the last hour and Jesus hasn't showed up for 2,000 years, so we ripped that part of Scripture out? 
Well, there's a couple of things we need to look at. First of all, many people believe throughout history that their time was the last time, the last hour, that Jesus was coming back. They looked at the depravity of the world and said, Jesus has to be coming back to fix it. Why wouldn't John feel that way? There are people taking the truth of Jesus that he had just preached in flesh and changing it and saying Jesus really wasn't here in the flesh. It is possible John was saying, I think it's all over. It's all done with. Does that make what John said wrong? I think we know now, at least growing up, I can think of numerous points where everybody said it was going to be over. Anybody who knew anybody was on the TV saying, give us money because the world's about to end. I'm really not sure how that works for anything, but year 2000, our computers were all going to shut down and Jesus was going to be forced to come back because the computers shut down. On this side, isn't that a little ridiculous that Jesus is being controlled by our ability to make a date on a computer work? 1980s, now you know I'm old. I remember the planets were all going to be lined up, and that was going to cause this gravitational pull and earthquakes, and the end of the world was going to come, as though God was being controlled by his own nature that he created. We all have those ideas, and as I get older, the more I look at the world differently, and I'm starting to realize what I thought was terrible about older people, I'm the same way. I see the depravity differently, and I think, oh, how much longer can Jesus put up with this? So it's possible John got to a point when Jesus is coming back, it's enough. That is possible. It doesn't make him wrong. Because what did Jesus say himself? Who will know when the world ends? No one, not even Jesus knew when he was coming back the second time. So it's important to remember that people throughout history will always think Jesus is coming back. It's possible John thought that but he did not know for sure. We know the season. We will see the signs. But does God really stuck with our time frame? We every day are closer to Jesus coming back. That we know for sure. Because that's the way time works. Other than that, be ready. That's all we can do. But here's what the scholars say. It's more likely when he said the end times or these are the end days or hours, he was taking it from one of two angles. It was the last hour of the apostolic age. I know, we're going to scholarly words. Let's just do it in human terms. The apostles that were around Jesus saw him perform these miracles. Remember, John is saying, I touched, I saw, I felt, I experienced Jesus. I know he was a man. I know he was real. I know he died, and I know he came back. He would be one of the last ones of that group. From that time after, it would be people learning from the people who wrote about what they saw. It's possibly saying this is the last chance I have or anyone has to say, I was there without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus is real and he was here. It's also possible that he's talking about, in scholarly words, the final dispensation, the final era in history. Remember, there's been a bunch. There was innocence in the garden and then man ruled himself because man walked away from God. After that, there was the age of human government after the flood where the government ruled man. And then there was a promise to Abraham where they lived looking forward to God showing up in a different way which came through the law of Moses to the Jewish people who would represent God to the world. And after the law came Jesus. It's possible, John, saying this is it. There is no more revelation of God where God's going to show up in some way 
at the top of a mountain or in flashes, Jesus, this is the last hour, the last chance for you to come to Christ. It's not a time frame, but a realization that when Jesus comes back again, it's all over. But does it matter? It doesn't matter what he meant. We'll never know, probably, till we're in heaven. But we know this. We know that we all need to live as though Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I've often said this on the way home today. I could get in a car crash and get killed. It doesn't matter when the world ends. The world ends for me the day I die. I need to be ready. Always ready. The second thing is, we know that the church was looked after by the apostles. They're not here. So we need to be the ones that present the gospel. Those who have viewed the scriptures and understand. And the third is, it doesn't matter what era we are in. It doesn't matter if we're under the law. We are all called to live in the era we are in. We are called to live in the era of grace, where we teach reconciliation, where we bring to people the idea of you can be at peace with God. The second one's more difficult, the word antichrist. That's a tough one. When I hear the word antichrist, I think end times. When I think end times, I think the antichrist. And here John throws in there's many antichrists. I have enough trouble with revelation and think of one antichrist. I have enough trouble understanding all those metaphoric visions in the Bible. And now he's throwing in there's a bunch of antichrists. Not only that, the world didn't end and they're already there. I mean, for most of us, we think the antichrist comes, it's all over pretty soon. That's great. We're going to be with Jesus, but John says we're going to live through these antichrists, that they're actually going to be amongst us. As we discussed before, the idea of anti can be determined as against. That's the way it works in English. But there's a second possibility, and it's very close, replacement Christ. The antichrist wants to set himself up as a replacement for Christ. I would say they're kind of the same, although I've had a few of my more scholarly involved people correct me when I say the Antichrist is against Christ and tell me, no, it's the replacement for Christ. I keep saying to them, if you're trying to be against Christ, you're going to try to replace him with something. They win. They're smarter than I am. But the truth is, there will be people that will preach against Christ being the Christ, against Jesus being the Messiah. And John's saying they're already there. I'll tell you right now, they're already here too, not necessarily in this room, but in this world. They'll preach that Jesus was nothing but a good man. Remember, they're dealing with people, they're discounting who Jesus was, what Jesus meant to the people that lived on this planet. It is possible that some of them were claiming to be Jesus. It is possible that time in history, someone was standing up and saying, I am the Christ. I am the one that will save you, and others were following them. That may have been the group that split off. It is also possible that there was people, and we know this from the Gnostics, preaching an against Christ message. Two possibilities. Does it matter which one you believe? Probably not, because both are wrong, both are bad, and both need to be avoided. The third one is the difficult one. Thankfully, if we believe this one out of its context, John, you're already retired, you don't have to worry about this. For people like me who have been called to make their living as someone who preached the gospel, this one is kind of disconcerting. The anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do, not, you do not need anyone to teach you. I mean, if you take that one and just at face value, I can just leave now. You don't need me here. You don't need discipleship. 
It's not what it means, but it can be taken that way. As a matter of fact, you could have slept in this morning. It wouldn't have mattered. You didn't care what time it was. If it was football season, you wouldn't miss the beginning of the first game if you're one of the 11 o'clock service people. You don't need to be taught. That's not what John was saying. Scholars are split on what this meant. However, none believe that John was saying you don't need to be taught because then John's letter would be a couple of lines long. I'm writing this letter to tell you I don't need to teach you anything because you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be taught. Why would you write a letter if we don't need to be taught? Some scholars believe he's saying you have the Holy Spirit in you and that's why you recognize that Jesus is alive, that Jesus was a man but also God, that the Spirit inside of you is revealing the mysteries of this world. Others believe that that anointing, that Spirit of God, was the one that was showing them that the Antichrist existed. They actually recognize something's not right. I think both can be true. Have you ever thought to yourself why you believe that, that Jesus is God in the flesh? Why you believe that a man walked on water? There's something that the Spirit does that opens our minds to the incredible mystery of God and how far beyond us God is. So it's possible you will recognize things at the nudging of the Spirit that are wrong. And it's possible you will recognize things in the Bible that are right and think, why do I believe this to be true? And all you can say is, I know that I know that I know that it's true. That is the anointing, the Spirit of God dwelling in you. This is the only conclusion from this section I can come from. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. Grace must govern what we do. Love and repentance must be part of our lives. None of the original apostles are alive, therefore we must carry that task, not being people that saw Jesus personally, but being people that still believe in him. The Antichrist and many Antichrists are out there. We must live with that and not be led astray. And we have the Spirit of God in us guiding us, leading us. It's often underplayed. There is nothing more special than realizing that God is inside of you, speaking to you, nudging you. The creator of the universe has designed you to be able to have his Holy Spirit in you, leading you. What an awesome opportunity that we often miss out on. What is the challenge here? Well, remain in him. Don't leave because that anointing, the Spirit of God dwelling in you, is not going to be in you in the same way if you walk away. Stay aligned with God. Even if you stay under God as your belief system, if you don't stay aligned, you don't even notice that nudging. We just try and not do bad stuff and wait for Jesus to come back. But if you're aligned with God, you will hear the Spirit speaking, pointing out the wrong theologies, the missteps, the ways of the world. Let's get away from the challenge. What is exciting about this? I've talked to a bunch of you, and many of you have told me the same story, that in the last four or five years, you knew something wasn't right, but you couldn't put your finger on it. In a time of growth and things looking good, something wasn't right, and yet you couldn't explain it. Can I propose to you today that the Spirit was nudging you? And although you didn't fully understand what was wrong, I've heard the same story. I knew in here something wasn't right. This section from John could be written to you. 
You remained in God knowing something wasn't quite right. You simply had to trust because you couldn't figure out what was wrong. I think that's exciting. I think to recognize that you had God leading you through the last years that have been difficult is exciting. Now, before anybody goes off and say, I'm calling someone the Antichrist, I am not calling someone the Antichrist. I am saying that there were things that had gone wrong, but you sense the Spirit of God saying, this is not right. And it's why we're here today in the middle of a transition, because we stayed in God. We remained aligned with God as a church. And here we are on the other side, building what God desires for us. I don't want to downplay what the Spirit did here when you hear the same story over and over again. Something wasn't right. I didn't know what it was, but I did know something wasn't right. There is the guide telling you, stay away from this and leading you a different direction. Take comfort. Take heart. In this transition, hopefully we'll start to work towards the idea of something wasn't right, but how do we listen to the Spirit of God and figure out what it is? It says we should keep in step with the Spirit. As we grow, hopefully we'll start to hear what that is. But the first step was already taken. In the middle of the toughest of times, you heard the nudging of the Spirit of God. You should be excited about that realizing we're only building on something that's already great and only going to get better in our church. I pray that you will listen this week to the nudging of the Holy Spirit saying, go this way, don't go that way. That you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you, this isn't right, guard your heart against this. That you hear the Holy Spirit repeating what God wants to say to you. His Spirit is saying, I love you. I love you. I want to protect you. I want to care for you. Remain in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, for everyone here, including myself, remind us that your spirit has been nudging us, that there is a sense of something supernatural. God, you anointed us with your spirit. God, remind us that your spirit's always there. God, help us all to hear what your spirit is saying to go beyond the nudging to hearing the words of God's direction through his spirit that dwells in us. God, point out to us those who would speak words that are against your son. Those that would propose ideas that were anti the Savior, the Christ. But also point out our church family, those who would speak good and truth. So together we can be comforting to one another loving our brothers and sisters, and walking in step with your spirit towards the great plans you have for us. In your name we pray.